okay, so uh, I will now then present uh, our first speaker, François Dubois, uh, is one of the members of our team here at UCL. He is very well known in Iranian studies as well as uh, in studies um, relating to um, Islamic uh, literature from the early medieval period uh, and has published uh, quite a bit already on Biruni, publications which go back I think to over 20 years. Uh, or at least publications which are related to the work of Biruni. So this is a project which uh, has occupied Francois for very many years and uh, now he is, uh, within the project, he is now um, in charge of the Biruni uh, project, edition, translation and commentary. So without um, further ado, uh, Francois, over yes. to you. Yes, um, thank you very much, Sasha, for the, for the introduction. Um, this is the first speech of the day, so I'm going to start off with some very brief remarks about El-Biruni's biography, and then we will look uh, briefly, superficially, at the chronology and concentrate on the question of the, man of the manuscript tradition and the textual problems of the chronology. Uh, our author, Abu Rehan Mohammed bin Ahmed, El-Biruni or El-Biruni uh, was born probably in 362 of the Hijra corresponding to 972 of the Christian era in the land of Khwarezm, the ancient Khwarezmia, an erstwhile province of the Achaemenid Empire, a country mentioned already in the Avesta. This country corresponds roughly to the southern half of modern Uzbekistan. In Uzbekistan, Biruni is a great national hero. Uh, so there's a Biruni university in the capital, Tashkent. And um, the old uh, capital of Khwarezmiakath has actually been renamed Biruni. So we have, I think this is a very Soviet way of doing things to name, isn't it? <laughs> to name cities after after famous people, not necessarily politicians. Today, Uzbekistan is, of course, a Turkic-speaking country, mainly with a few uh, linguistic islands of Persian. But at the time of Beiruni, uh, the, the Turkization of, um, at least of, of uh, Khorezmia, does not seem to have begun yet. There's no trace of it, really, in his works. The population or shall we say at least part of the population, as far as we know, still spoke the Khorezmian language, which is an Eastern Iranian language. Uh, this language was still alive uh, a century later at the time of Zamakhshari, so it held on for quite a long time. Persian was probably spoken in the cities as, a, as the uh, language of society, and Arabic, of course, was the, um, the language of, of learning and of religion. We'll talk about this precise problem in, in just a moment. Um, at the age of about 20, Al-Biruni left his homeland and traveled westwards and established himself at the court of the king of Gurgaon on the southern shore of the Caspian Sea, so let's say northern Persia. Shamsul Ma'ali Kabus bin Wushmagir, a well-known figure in Islamic history, and it's to him that our author dedicated his chronology in the year 1000. About 10 years later, he returned to his native Khwarezmia and attached himself um, 
as a professional astronomer or astrologer, court astrologer to the court of the local ruler. In 1017, Khorezmia was conquered by the famous Mahmud of Ghazna, uh, a, uh, who uh, uh, ruled from, from Ghaznin in what is now southern Afghanistan. Uh, the Ghaznavids were of Turkish stock, but of Persian culture and Persian speaking. And um, when, uh, when uh, Khorezmia was, was conquered by the Ghaznavids, all the precious possessions um, of the king of Khorezmia were put into carts and carted off to Afghanistan, including the scholars who were attached to the court. So um, the result of this, uh, Biruni was part of the, the war booty, basically. Um, and he then spent the rest of his life in, in Ghazna, serving three Ghaznavids, Mahmud, his son, Mas'ud, uh, to whom he dedicated his uh, great um, work on astronomy, and his son, Maudud. He died around the year 1050. We don't have, we have contradictory information about his precise date of death, but he does mention that he was, in one of his books, that he had already passed the age of 80 lunar years. I'm not going to speak at about the uh, length, about the details of his biography, uh, but as we will be mentioning it a lot today, I would like to say something about his name, and in particular about his surname, his Nasab al-Biruni. We have on this matter a, uh, a very important source, and that is uh, the big um, prosopographical dictionary, a dictionary of surnames, Kitab al-Ansab, by As-Sam'ani, who lived about a century after al-Biruni. Here's his short entry on, um, on this particular name. Uh, now, his usual habit is, first of all, to tell you exactly how you pronounce it, because this is tricky in Arabic. So he spells it out letter for letter, giving the names of the letters fully written out and the names of the, of the vowels that belong to it. But in this particular case, all of this effort was made, um, uh, was, was wrecked again by the copyist because we actually have two contradictory um, versions of this. In the, um, the Istanbul, uh, the Kripulu manuscript, which is the better of the two manuscripts, he is called El Beyruni bi Fat El Ba, but in the London manuscript, he is called El Biruni bi Kasr El Ba. So spelling it out doesn't save you from uh, problems. Uh, I think everyone agrees that this is an Arabicized form for Persian, Beyruni. Uh, adjective from Beirun meaning outside, and Arabic doesn't have the vowel A, so it is represented usually by I, diphthong, but sometimes by the vowel E, so both of these spellings are, I suppose, uh, linguistically legitimate. So explaining the name we have in beginning in the well, second line, yeah? Nisba. This surname refers to, well, literally it says, to the outskirts of Khorezmia, Kharij Khorezm, but um, I think he means the outskirts of the capital city, so the outskirts of Kath. For in that country, if someone is from the outskirts of the town and not from the town itself, they say of him in Persian, Fulan Beirunist, he is an outsider, but in their language they say, and 
And the person known by this surname is Abu Rayhan al-Biruni, the astronomer. Um, so we have the, this, this name in Arabic, Persian, and in Khorezmian. Um, the uh, form Anbitsak, as in the uh, Istanbul manuscript, is, if we could scroll down just a tiny bit, is confirmed by our most important source for the Khorezmian language, which is the Khorezmian glosses in one of the manuscripts of Azamakshari's Mukaddimat al-Adab, a book on Arabic lexicography, where the Arabic word ditha, outer garment, is glossed as anbitsak, and then another word, so outer garment. So here, confirming that anbitsak, written defectively in the, in the manuscript, means outside. So it looks as though our author's real name was anbitsak, and that this was Persianized as Beiruni, which in turn was Arabicized as El B or Beiruni. Some light on our author's own linguistic and ethnic self-definition emerges from a very interesting passage in the introduction to his book on pharmacology. Do we have it? It's not all right. I didn't copy it yet. What's on, number, what's on number two? No. no. Good. Yeah. Uh, this, um, so in, in his book on pharmacology, which is called Kitab al-Saidana, which he wrote when he was past the age of 80, here he uh, says quite unambiguously that the best of all languages is Arabic. But the reason he gives for this is a bit surprising. The reason that Arabic is the best language is because it is the language into which all the sciences of all the nations have been translated. And for this reason, it has a very rich scientific and technical vocabulary. And then he continues, I can illustrate this with my own case. My soul was cast into the mold of one language, meaning Khorezmian, one language in which if one were to express any science in it, it would, be as, it would be deemed as absurd as if a camel were to drink from a roof gutter and a giraffe were to drink from the waters of a stream. Um, <laughs> this must be some sort of proverb. I think the idea is a, is a camel can't drink from a gutter because its neck is too short and a giraffe can't drink from the stream, supposedly, because its neck is too long. So... Later, my soul was transported into Arabic and Persian, though I was a tongue-tied foreigner in both of them. And yet, I would rather be insulted in Arabic than praised in Persian. <laughs> the truth of this will be obvious to anyone who has had to do with a scientific book that has been translated into Persian, of which there were a few at that period already. Its elegance has been dismissed, has been diminished, its meaning hidden, its face blackened, and its usefulness eradicated. For this language is suitable only for the accounts of ancient kings and for bedtime stories, Asmar, Leilia. Uh, obviously thinking not very respectably, respectfully of his older contemporary, Ferdowsi, the creator of the Persian national epic. So, um, Biruni's, in Biruni's view, the superiority of the Arabic language, and perhaps we can deduce that of Arabophone civilization, resides precisely in the fact that it, it has adopted and assimilated the scientific knowledge of the whole world, primarily that of the ancient Greeks, but also that of the Indians and the ancient Persians. His endeavor to benefit 
to a maximum extent from this international, shall we say, treasury of knowledge is evident in all of his writings and in particular in the chronology. The chronology, the Arabic uh, title is Al-Afar al-Baqiya an al-Qurun al-Khaliya, literally, the, liter the remaining footsteps from bygone generations. The title suggests that it is a book about ancient history. Uh, I would suggest that although it does indeed belong to the genre of history, it is history of a very special sort. It is an astronomer's take on history. Rather than merely telling us that a king so-and-so ruled for such-and-such such a number of years, months, and days, the astronomer El-Biruni first wants to establish what exactly is a year, a month, a day. How did people at that period measure the passage of time, and what are the consequences for this for establishing a universal chronology of human history? And this leads him to an investigation of the dating systems and calendars of all nations of the world, as known then. The date of the work cannot, can be established with a high degree of certainty. El-Biruni refers not once but several times to our year, Sanatuna, as the year 1311 of Alexander, so 1311 of the Seleucid era, which corresponds to the, years nine, the year from 999 to 1000 of our common era. This information is confirmed by numerous historical allusions in the course of the text. At the time when he wrote it, he was at an age of a mere 29 lunar years. It is very much a young man's book, pugnacious and self-confident. Uh, the chronology was published by the famous Semitist Edward Zachau in 1878, and the following year, 1879, he followed this by a richly annotated English translation with the title The Chronology of Ancient Nations. As a basis for his edition, Zachau had three Arabic manuscripts, at his disposal. They're listed at the bottom of the handout. One in Paris, another was in the, so that's P, another L was in the British Museum in London, and a third was at that time, this is R, was at that time in the possession of the famous traveler Rawlinson, but it is now also in the British Library. In his introduction to the edition, uh, Zachau undertook a scrupulous evaluation of the three codexes and came to a very disappointing conclusion. He uh, ascertained that all three are copied from a common defective original. The most obvious um, sign of this is that about half a dozen quite substantial passages are missing in all three manuscripts at the same point. Um, so must have been missing already in their common source, and they also share a large number of common obvious mistakes, which must also go back to the original. Um, so, but in the meantime, our knowledge of the textual basis has improved to a certain extent. First of all, uh, we know now that the common source of the three manuscripts used by Zachau is actually extant and available, and it is the manuscript, the very beautiful, illustrated and illuminated copy 
in Edinburgh, now in Edinburgh, which at that time was already in the possession of the ex-British ambassador in, um, in, um, to Qajar, Iran, uh, Binli, um, but uh, was not available to Zaha, was not, he, didn't, he wasn't told about it. Um, this um, Edinburgh manuscript, uh, as I said, has the same omissions, the same obvious omissions as in Zachar's three manuscripts. Now this, of course, could be due to the fact that they all derived from a common incomplete archetype, but I think it can be shown that the Edinburgh manuscript is the either the direct or the indirect source of all three of Zachar's copies. And the evidence for this, I will show you very briefly. If we could look at the, I have the next slide, the next mm. picture. Uh, can we scroll down to the bottom of the page? Tiny. Yeah, yeah, a bit, yeah, a bit higher. Yeah, as yeah, this is the chapter on the. Make it a bit bigger. Yeah, this is the chapter about the Muslim festivals. And uh, as Zafar noticed, there is very obviously a gap which is not marked in any of his manuscripts. Before this, he is talking about the festivals in the month of Safar, the second month. And after the gap, he is talking about the um, months, uh, the festivals in Shaban, the eighth month. So there's obviously a description, of, a description of, of uh, five full months is missing. Um, so this is quite obvious that something is, there's a gap in the text. Moreover, this sentence begins, Kharajar doesn't go with this sentence. So, Zahar noticed this. Um, now, if we look at the corresponding passage in the Edinburgh manuscript, that's our next picture. Basically, maybe you need it. You just get and put down here. Just a little bit bigger. No, not that one. The other one. That's too big. Make it bigger to fill the page. Yeah. I'm just thinking. If you need this side, I can. Yeah, I need both sides. You need both. Yeah. Sides. Yeah. And the bottom. And the bottom. Yeah. Like that. Yes, and even further. Let's let's leave it like this for them. Yeah. Can we see the bottom of the page? Yeah. So this gap that we that that uh, we just noticed begins here at the bottom of this page and ends at the bottom of, at the top of the next page. So here's this word Kharaja and here's the word Allah Ta'ala uh, after the gap. So it is quite clear that there are, there's one or more pages physically missing at this point. So that the gap in the, in the daughter manuscripts comes from the fact that some pages are lost in their common prototype. And if we go down just a bit further uh, we actually have here a note in, in Persian. It's partially stuck in the, in the binding, but I think it says, Yak Waraka Oftade Nadorad. Yes, meaning one, one um, leaf is missing. I think probably two leaves are actually missing. Now I could show you the same thing with the other uh, six big gaps in Zaha's edition. All of them begin at the bottom of the verso and end at the bottom of, at the top of the following recto. So it is quite clear that at some point some pages of the Edinburgh manuscripts disappeared. 
they've probably fell out, possibly fell out, though I think it is more likely that they were removed by someone who wanted to sell the miniatures. This is something that we know from, from modern times, uh, but it must have happened a long time ago because, for example, the uh, uh, London manuscript is dated 1668, so already at that stage these pages must have been lost or removed. Yes, well, this clarifies the textual situation to a considerable extent. We can see now that basically the three manuscripts used by Zahal are useless or have no longer value for the critical edition because we have their common source, unfortunately already mutilated. Now, what about the missing bits? Well, there are fortunately some complete manuscripts of the chronology that have come to light since Zachal's time. The most important of these is the um, is uh, and the oldest of these is manuscript B on your handout, which is in the Bayazid collection in Istanbul. And could we have the next slide, number four? Yeah, this is the, the title page. Uh, yeah. Alright, so there's the title. And as you can see, a lot of people have, have studied this manuscript and have uh, uh, recorded the fact. Uh, some of them are dated, some are quite recent, like this one, 10. Uh, but the most important of the most important reader's note, um, unfortunately, I can't show you a picture because I don't have an adequate photograph of it, is at the end, where someone has written that he has copied from it. The phrase he uses "nasaka anhu," and he gives the date. It's in Ramadan 603, which is 1207. Now, some people have misunderstood this uh, note as being a colophone, saying that it was copied in, um, in 1207, but this is not what it says. It doesn't say that he copied it, it says that he copied from it. So he made a transcript of it and immortalized this fact by a note written in the margin of the last page saying that this was on such and such a date. This um, very important... Uh, let's look, we can look at a couple... If we go to the next slide, just as a, a sample... Uh, and we need to rotate to the left. Mm. Rotate, rotate. View. View? View, yeah. It doesn't give me the view. No, it should go back to tool. Yeah, go back to view. It doesn't give me the view. It should. Yeah. Well, I can try playing with it. Yeah, my computer works. Yeah, doesn't work. Well. Okay. Just scroll down a bit. I think some of the yeah, it's all it's all silent. <coughs> yes, yeah, all right. I don't know when we can we can't check it. Should, should normally be under view. Yeah, all right, let's leave it then. Um, I'll play with it. Yeah, all right, if it, if it, if it, some, we have some more, we have some more afterwards. Um, yeah, so this manuscript was, was copied before 1207. Um, 
Birni died, as we know, around um, 1050, so this gives us a, 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 a space to play with of about 150 years. But I would say, and one has to always be cautious about this sort of thing, that it looks to me like a 12th century manuscript and not like an 11th century manuscript. I think uh, afterwards, Eleonora will be showing us some of the uh, early manuscripts of the Kanun from the 11th century. They're in a very different sort of script. This is a, sort of a standard... No, yeah, I think we're not going to get Never mind. We'll see some more pictures of it later. Um, it, is, uh, it is very carefully written. It is... Uh, sufficiently pointed and vocalized, so it doesn't have all of the dots for the letters and doesn't have all of the vowel signs, but has enough to make it, uh, on the whole, quite easily um, legible. And it also has been collated and has collation marks, which I'll talk about a little bit more um, later. Uh, now, um, the um, Islam, the Bayazid manuscript, was first uh, studied by the famous Arabist Helmut Ritter in an article in 1933 um, where he again correctly interpreted the, the formula in the reader's note at the end. Uh, Ritter at that time made, um, I think, microfilm. Yes, he made a microfilm not of the whole manuscript but only of the sections that were missing in Zakhar's edition for whatever reason, had perhaps to do with Turkish politics or something. And he gave these, um, these uh, microfilms are actually, I've seen them myself. They are in Uppsala in the university library. And uh, Ritter gave them, or a copy of them, to two German scholars, Garbers and Fuch, who um, published the seven large missing bits, seven bits that are missing, uh, significant bits that are missing in uh, Zachar's edition, but did not collate the remainder of the manuscript. So... As a result of this publication from 1952 in a book called Documenta Islamica Inedita, we have virtually all of the missing bits. Uh, then some years later, a not Russian but Soviet scholar, Khalidov, um, published a uh, collated um, yeah, uh, a, a manuscript in then Leningrad, now Petersburg again, of course, um, with a microfilm of the Bayazid manuscript and published a few more missing bits, smaller missing bits from the edition and added a collation of the sections that had been published by Garbers and Fuch. Then, in, uh, quite recently, in 2001, we have a new edition of the chronology by an Iranian scholar called Azkari. Uh, this edition has the advantage that it has all the missing bits in the right place, um, so you don't have to piece it together yourself. Unfortunately, it is not a critical edition in any true sense of the word. What Askai has, I mean, I, I took one of the longer chapters and collated it completely with uh, the B manuscript and uh, had rather disappointing um, conclusion that Azkari, for the most part, has simply reproduced the previously published editions by Zachar and others, uh, so Zachar's edition and the fragments published by others, and collated them superficially with B, Bayazid manuscript, and with E, Edinburgh manuscript, and with um, 
what's the other one he used? S is one in the Topkapi Sarai, but which he established is actually copied from B and is not an independent source. Um, so, for example, very often Azkari has a reading, so adopts without comment a reading by Zacho, even if there is a better reading in B, which he does not report in the apparatus. Um, at other times, he adopts conjectures by Zachau without identifying them as conjectures, which is a very serious defect in a, in a critical edition. And also, there are quite a lot of places where they are sim- it's simply misprinted. Um, so I think it's not unfair to formulate, as I have formulated here on the handout, that it is based on the above-cited editions superficially collated with B, E, and S. The second half of the book is a commentary. He has translated all of Zachau's notes from his English translation into Persian and added some notes of his own, which for the most part are rather um, superfluous, so, so remarks on well-known historical facts but doesn't address the real problems, which are many in this, um, in this uh, edition. Um, now, if we... Look at our. So basically, we are left with two main sources. We have the um, Bayezid manuscript and we have the Istanbul manuscript, um, uh, the Edinburgh manuscript, which is the source of uh, Zachar's edition. Comparing the two, um, I would. Uh, I've, this is not a statistic. This is a. This is a. A, 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 a guess. <coughs> I would say that in at least. 50% of the cases, perhaps a bit lower, let's say 60% of the cases um, where the two manuscripts disagree, B will have the correct reading and E will have an erroneous reading. In another 30% of the cases, um, both readings are equally possible. And in perhaps 10% of the cases, Edinburgh has a superior reading and Bayezid has an inferior reading. Um, so that I, in my approach to the text, um, base myself very much on the idea that Bayazit is the Codex Optimus, uh, that if the two manuscripts disagree, B should be given preference if its reading is possible, and that E should be given preference only when B is obviously wrong or when something has been omitted by the scribe erroneously. Um, this means that obviously Edinburgh is not copied from Bayezid because in some cases, in a relatively small number of cases it does have superior reading so it belongs to a separate family uh, now this uh, judgment of the relative value of the, of the two manuscripts I have two caveats the first involves the tables. Uh, in Bayezid, eh, yes, I'm, this, I would not say this with 100% certainty, but with a high degree of confidence, the tables and the text were copied by two different scribes. So there are two different scribes working together. One of them is a professional table copier. And the tables have quite a large number of mistakes. So, for example, in some of the king lists, the names of the kings are not lined up with the correct numbers. That, that, that 
there's been a, a shift in the, in the columns. Um, in the tables in Edinburgh manuscript, the text and the tables seem to be written by, I think almost certainly, are written by the same scribe. Uh, and the tables are, in many cases, more accurate in Edinburgh than they are in Bayezid. So we have two scribes working together with different specialties. Uh, the second question, which I'd like to look at just a little bit, involves the marginal corrections in B. Uh, these corrections... Um, yeah, this is very. This is common in 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 well copied Arabic manuscripts that the scribe will will copy out one manuscript and will then collate the text with another manuscript and mark the variants or the improvements in the margin. Now um, there is. Uh, that's good. If we have number picture number six. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's do, um, To go towards the bottom of the page. Yeah. Um, yeah, just right here. Here, this is again from Zachar's edition, and he has read the. This is this is the this is the section that um, that Sasha is going to be talking about this afternoon, where he is discussing the 19-year intercalation cycle. Just to say. Very briefly, the Babylonians discovered already that the difference between 12 lunar months and a solar year can be compensated if you add a 13th month seven times in 19 years. And here he's discussing where you insert the extra month in the 19-year cycle. And he's saying then this and this, and then it says here, Thumma Athnein Ya'nuna Asarisa Ashara Thumma Falaka. Then there's a gap of two years, bringing us to the 16th year of the cycle, and then three days, bringing us to the 19th. So that's correct. Now, if we look at Zachal's footnote K, we see that all three of his manuscripts have added Thumath name, then two, at this point, where it's totally wrong. It is clearly that that is a diplography, so they saw this word Thumathnein, and they copied it again here where it doesn't belong. So you can't say then this, then two, then three, bringing us to the 19th. That's, that's nonsense. So the fact that this is in all three manuscripts um, alerts us to the fact that it is probably in Edinburgh. And if we have the next picture. Uh, no, which side Yeah, let's just, let's, uh, here at the top. That's nice and big. Like that? Yeah, it's <laughs> too big. Yeah? Too big, okay. Like that? Yeah. So here it is. Thumath Nain, Ya Nuna Asadisata Ashara. Thumath Nain, again, wrong. Thumath Thalatha, correct, yes? So that, so obviously the three manuscripts that Zachar used had this from their common archetype, which is the Edinburgh manuscript. Now let's look at the Bayezid manuscript. This one. Yeah, the next one. And where if we can have here the bottom of this page. Yeah, now if we look here at the main text. Yeah. Like that. 
Yes, now if we look at the main text, it's absolutely correct. It says, Thumma Afnein Ya'nuna Sadisata Ashara Thumma Thalatha. Perfect, as in Zachar. But, if you note, here is an insertion mark, and in the margin it says Thumma Afnein, which is wrong. Yeah? So, it is quite clear, this is one, one example. Yeah? In fact, it says Sachar. That's correct. There's a correction. Yeah? So, um, so it's quite clear, this is one example of which there are many, uh, where we can, s which shows that someone, and I'm not sure whether this is, the, I think this probably is the same hand as this, but I'm not putting any bets on that, that someone, either the uh, original scribe or a later corrector, collated it with a manuscript that belongs to the same tradition as the Edinburgh manuscript, and which has some of the same errors, and that he then put these as so-called corrections in the body of the text. So if we have the next handout, the next um, um, projection, we have just a few minutes left for the discussion. Yeah, so this is a very provisional stemma codicum based on the manuscripts that I have either been able to examine myself or for which I have reliable information. There are others, in particular the Petersburg manuscript that I haven't studied yet and will perhaps throw all of this overboard. So this is my provisional stemma codicum, which is that, uh, that we have basically two families of manuscripts, one represented by B, Bayazit, the oldest manuscript of which S, the uh, Sarai manuscript, is a transcript, and the other represented by E, Edinburgh manuscript, and the ones that were copied from it also at, at second hand. Uh, but some of the wrong, wrong readings in E are also in the marginal corrections or pseudo-corrections in B, which leads us to think, to, to trace them back to a common ancestor, small epsilon, which is copied by E and is used for these marginal corrections. Yes, I could say a lot more, but I think we want to leave some time for, for discussion, so thank you for your attention. Yeah, well, um, in the canon, of course, there is a, is a substantial chronological section, tables of months and yes. so on. Uh, would you not find something useful by comparing? Yes, of course. Part? Yes, yes. I mean, that's part of the part of the work as well. Yes. Because you didn't mention. No, I didn't mention that. Yes. In fact, if you if you look at Zachar's translation in particular, he has filled up some of the gaps by translating the account in the Kanun. For, for example, in particular, the, the example I showed you with the, with the Arab, fest, with the Islamic festivals, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, now, it, we have now, now if we uh, compare that with, with the Bayezid manuscript, we can see that it's much briefer. It's very much, um, very much abbreviated in the Kanun, as in fact he says at several points that I discussed this in detail in Athar and I'm just summarizing it. But, um, yes, obviously it has... He didn't, I mean, he didn't copy verbatim from the chronology. So it's, you, you can't do the sort of nitty-gritty, small uh, emendation sort of things, but obviously it's also a source for correcting the text. Yes, absolutely. Does he appear to make corrections in the later... In the Kanun? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some, th I, th I think maybe Eleonora is going to talk about that. Yeah, there, there are there's, there's, there's some things that are, that are different. Huh? 
I mean, the main difference in the Kanun, of course, is that he describes the Indian calendar as well, which he doesn't in the chronology. Yeah. Yeah, so he didn't uh, work on the Indian calendar until later when he was in Ghazna. And that is summarized, that is described in great detail in the book on India and is then summarized in the Kanun. Can I ask you again? Um, you said that the book wasn't finished in Khwarezm. No, it was written in Gurgaon. So it wasn't finished or it wasn't written in Khwarezm? He wasn't working on Khwarezm on the book at all? No, I, not as far as we can see, no. Right, no. so he was... He yeah, I mean, we don't, of course, no, maybe he worked on it over the course of, the, uh, of years, but the, the, the finished book is, as I said, is dedicated to Shamsul Ma'ali. And that's on yeah. the Caspian. And that's just south of the Caspian Sea, yes. That's Thank you. as far west as he seems to have got in his life. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have time for plenty of time yeah. for questions and discussions. Uh, everyone should feel free to ask. Yeah, I, or I can go on and say some yeah, more things. No, yeah. There's no time pressure or, or Have you got anything to say about uh, his patron, Pabuz, um, and, and his own interest in astrology yeah, and astronomy? Um, Is that a factor? Probably. I mean, all of these courts, of course, had astrologers attached to them. Uh, uh, yes, uh, Pabuz, of course, is, is, is uh, famous as a, is one of many kings who is famous as a patron of the, of the sciences. Um, he also, of course, wrote books in, in Persian. Um, he patronized Avicenna, and Biruni and Avicenna got on rather badly, and we have a, an exchange of, uh, very interesting, um, exchange of uh, um, uh, criticizing, multiple, so Biruni criticizing Avicenna, Avicenna criticizing, or responding to Biruni's uh, critique. Yeah, did you mean anything more specific? I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, but there have been very complicated calculations made in Iran in the last 15, 20 years about uh, Qabus's mausoleum. Yes. And its, its connection with uh, astronomy. Yes. And I don't understand that, mm -hmm. frankly. But uh, it, it looks very similar. Yes, yeah. Very Certainly, I think we can say that he that he was interested in astronomy and that he patronized <laughs> scholars. <coughs> yeah. Um, this is a related question, but you had mentioned that he was working on uh, this work when he was under, possibly when he was under other patrons. Uh, so to what degree uh, was he influenced to continue working on this from Kabrus versus from other previous patrons or courts that he had served under? Uh, what, was the, what were the different factors that would Yeah, I mean, but there's, not, there's no trace of any of this in the, in the text. Okay. Yes. I mean, it's totally possible that he wrote the entire book in Kurga. In his autobibliography, which he wrote towards the end of his life, he listed among the works that he is still working on, which suggests that he was at least contemplating doing a second edition, 
and of course I've hoped for many years that that would show up somewhere, but it doesn't seem that it, that it did, so it's perhaps only an intention. But it was a, a subject that continued to occupy him throughout his life. Yes? Sorry? The methodology for drawing. The methodology? Yes, for Yeah, um, I mean, the first methodology is to see which is to see the extant manuscripts that are copied from one another, yes? So these are the P, L, and R are the three manuscripts used by, uh, by Zachau, yeah? And um, their dependence, as I said, the strongest uh, proof of their dependence is the common gaps, yes, the common lacunae, which are always at the <coughs> page borders in Edinburgh. This manuscript, this is the Nuru Osmaniye in Istanbul. I haven't seen it, but the description of it by, by, um, by Ritter uh, shows that it stops exactly at the point where the first lacuna, the first big lacuna is. So I would think that that is evidence that it derives from E as well, so that someone started to copy from E, then noticed that there was a big gap uh, in the manuscript, and, uh, and therefore gave it up, so abandoned uh, the, the copying. Here again, this, um, the, uh, the Sarai manuscript is very close in text to Bayezid, yeah? so it is derived, derived from it. And so that leaves us basically with two families, yes? Which there must no have a... Huh? So there is no correlation between these two groups. Uh, except that they derive from the master copy, obviously, from, from Omega. Yeah, if you have time, I was going to uh, just uh, remark on another thing, if we could have the next projection. That's number nine. Um, yes, and this, there should be another one after that one, yes? Um, if we go, yeah, just this is this is uh, a very interesting. Well, we don't have time to look at the at the whole thing, where he's giving uh, his account of the Persian mythology about the first man, about Gaiuma, yeah, and he says maybe if we can, I have a translation here too, yeah. As for the, as for the Persians, they call the first man. Gaiomath, and his by name is Garshaw, that is King of the Mountain, but others say it is Gilshaw, that is King of Clay, since at that time there was no other person. Uh, it's a, a bit laconic, but I think what I think he means is he was the first man, so there, wasn't, there weren't any other people to be king over, he could only be king of unstructured clay, yeah? And it is uh, also said that the interpretation of his name is living, rational, mortal. Yeah? Now, there's a lot of, of, very, of accurate information here. So we know, first of all, that uh, in the Avesta Gayo, Maratam actually means uh, living, mortal. Uh, so this is a, is a correct translation, which he must have had from some well-informed Zoroastrian source. Yeah, the Lakab of Gayomad is uh, quote is quote, he gives two possibilities. Gar Gar means mountain in Middle Persian, Gil means clay in Middle and New Persian. And um, in Pahlavi script, both of these words are written exactly identical. 
Yeah, so it could be read either as Garsha or as Gershaw. Um, and he quotes both of these possibilities. Now, um, what I wanted to say from the point of view of textual criticism, um, in B, let me go back, I think, to the top of this. This is the reading in Bayazid, yeah? So, Garshaw and Yeah, Gilshaw, yeah? In the uh, Edinburgh manuscript, if we could go to the bottom of the page. <coughs> Stop me, yeah? No, all the way to the footnotes, yes? Yeah? In the Edinburgh manuscript, I think it has Kushaw, so with a Rao <coughs> instead of a Ra as the second letter. Um, now, um, Go, uh, uh, sorry, Ko with an H at the end, Koch, means mountain in New Persian. Um, now the, th three men, the three copies that Zachar had, R, L, and P, all interpreted this differently. So R has Kushaw exactly like this. L has Kohshaw, which is the correct Persian spelling for king of the mountain. And P, surprisingly, has the correct reading Garshaw. And what does this show? This shows that these scribes are not, are not stupid people, that they, that they are thinking about what they are writing, that they are actually making conjectures, which in this case actually turns out to be correct. Good. Um, since you mentioned here the question of his sources, what are his actual sources? Do we know much about that at all? Um, yeah, this is a big problem. Sometimes he mentions sources, but very often he doesn't mention any sources. I know that Sasha is going to be talking about this in relation to the, the section on the Jewish calendar. Um, this particular story, if we go all the way to the bottom, this uh, rather strange version of the story of the primal man, he says it has a man called Abul Hassan Adur Khwar El Mohendis, the land surveyor. We don't know this person, um, but he uses the verb I heard, Samettu, which implies that this is an oral source. I think we can reasonably conclude that this is an oral source. This would also explain why it is partially very strange, the version that he gives of this. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes, I mean, he quotes Ptolemy and, and so forth, um, but very often he does not indicate his source. So I think it's probably based mainly on written sources, but with a certain amount of oral input. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, you had mentioned the letters. Uh, I know this deviates a little bit from the chronology, but it's related in some ways. I wanted to ask, usually the letters are placed around 997. The letters with? The letters with, sorry, with Ibn Sina. With Ibn Sina, yeah. Um, which would precede the chronology. Yes. Um, but it's interesting that in the letters they're debating uh, flask experiments and vacuum. Yes. Uh, and in the chronology, I think he mentions um, Aristotle's discussion of Empatocles on the same issue. I don't recall exactly. And it's very interesting that um, his later work on mineralogy yes. references a specific um, location outside the river Jaihun where he was doing flask experiments. Yes. Um, that was near Jivjania, which he was at 
after 997. Yes, so could either be, would, would mean either in his in his very early, very early yeah. before he left uh, Koresmia or in his return after being in Gurgaon and before going to, yeah. But, yeah. Because it seems that he's, there are some, you, you could make an argument that maybe the letters lasted longer. It could be, yes, know. yeah. I think that the, um, I haven't looked into this particular this particular text in in detail. I know there are there are there are um, um, there's a section that is there's some letters from Biruni to to um, to Ibn Sina. There's a response, and then there is an I think a third word which is of dubious authenticity. Yeah, that it was perhaps written by one of his pupils later. The interesting thing about this correspondence, I mean, perhaps you have worked on it, yeah? Yeah. Uh, is uh, basically what Biruni is criticizing is the whole Aristotelian system, and which is basically he presents as having been swallowed whole by the Islamic philosophers without thinking about it and that it is wrong. And that his, that his criticism in many cases is from an Islamic theological standpoint. Yes. Since you mentioned Ptolemy, yeah. does, and Ptolemy makes a distinction between astronomy and astrology when represented by these syntaxes. Yes, exactly. Yes. The other by the tetrahedrons. Yes. Now, did Al-Biruni, does he say anything about this distinction? Yeah, this, um, this is uh, all very complicated, actually. Um, I would say that in 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 Arabic, munajim can mean either astronomer or astrologer, and that there's no clear distinction between astronomy and astrology. The Kanun, the last section of it, is about astrology, yeah. And he also wrote separately about astrology in his um, Tafhim. Um, yeah, I would say certain. Yeah, I don't know. I would say that implicitly there is a distinction between scientific astronomy and astrology. Um, but it is not, I think, formulated as such. Can I, can I just go back briefly to the question of sources? Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you mentioned Ptolemy. Um, but what, what other sources does he mention? Does he, does he confine himself to... Um, when it comes to literary sources or yes. written sources, does he confine himself to the classical Hellenistic ones, or does he does he mention yeah. also Islamic ones? Or the so, yeah, the very, for the Islamic history and also for the Persian history, pre-Islamic Persian history, he is d very dependent on Hamza Lisfahani, who lived about a century before, and um, he is also explicitly cited as one of his uh, as one of his sources. The um, Account of the yeah, for example, in the in the historical chronology, there is the biblical uh, chronology. Yes, from Adam onwards, and here he quotes. Um, yeah, I mean, he is aware of the difference between the times, the intervals, as given in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish version of the Hebrew Bible, in the Samaritan Bible, and in the Septuagint. So he gives. He says, "This is according to the Jews. This is according to the Christians." There are two parallel columns of how long each of the patriarchs lived, according to the Jews and according to the Christians. Yeah? He also, in that same section, he mentions by name the Seder Olam, um, which he must have been familiar with. 
the section on um, Greek on the Greek kings, Greek antiquity, and so forth, is largely based on um, Ptolemy's handy tables, and seem without being explicitly cited. He also seems to have used Eusebius in an Arabic translation, which is not otherwise extant. For the Persian chronology in particular, he quotes um, often conflicting reports from different named people, some of whom are not otherwise known. Others, like Hamza, are well known. In um, the section on Islamic history, for example, in the Islamic festivals, uh, he uses largely standard sources without explicitly crediting them. So, for example, I found one passage which occurs in virtually the same form in Tabari's history. So, which he must have lifted from Tabari, but didn't think it was worthwhile crediting such a, a well-known source explicitly. The section on the parapegmata, the weather predictions, is based on a, um, uh, a, a Arabic version of uh, Ptolemy's Fasis. Yeah, so there are lots of sources, and as I say, sometimes he credits them, sometimes he doesn't. This is pretty much normal practice in, uh, in, uh, in Arabic books, that you don't always credit who you're copying, and sometimes you do. To copy knowledge is a good thing. To produce a book is a good thing. It's a meritorious deed, and it's not necessary to say who you copied it from have accrued benefit by passing on human knowledge. And the working languages are always Arabic and Persian. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah, I don't, any other languages. despite what has been claimed in a lot of secondary literature, I don't think he knew any other languages. I don't think he knew Sanskrit. I think he worked with, uh, in India, he worked the same way that the people like William Jones or Coleman worked with Indian informants who translated Sanskrit books for him into some language that they both spoke, perhaps Persian, and and uh, and use that. Um, he could, um, what he could do is he could read Syriac script, because in the pharmacology he says that one of the sources that he has is written. The names of the, the of the medicaments are written in Syriac letters, and that this is very good because they're much less ambiguous than Arabic letters. I don't think he could read the Syriac language. I think it, maybe it was a book in what we call Karshuni. Uh, Arabic in, in Syriac script. He, I don't think. I think it's quite clear he didn't know Greek. He didn't actually know Greek. He didn't know Syriac or Sanskrit, but he had informants. There, there are discussions about whether he knew Sanskrit. Yeah, you know, I read what he writes about the Sanskrit language in the book on India. Is in my view is not someone that knows the language talking. It's someone speculating about. This and that. Mm. Yeah, where he talks about the consonant clusters in Sanskrit mm. and says, I don't know whether they inserted a vowel in between the consonants or not. Does it? That, oh. that sort of thing. Yeah? He wouldn't say that if he, he wouldn't say that if he actually knew the language. Mm. Well, he might have been learning it. Yeah, might have been learning <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, this is, as I said, this is the sort of thing that has emerged also in recent research by, about people like William Jones. Yeah, who obviously knew some Sanskrit but didn't actually know very much. 
and that his translations are based on oral, oral translations by Indian scholars. His, uh, his information about Indian chronology um, has proved to be very um, confusing. And, and information about the era of Harsha, about the Gupta era, people who um, have looked at uh, Indian practices closely feel that his information was so um, confused or even incompetent the 19th century specialists like Ferguson, who worked on Indian chronology, uh, became quite exasperated with this confused information about yes. Indian um, eras. Yeah. Yes. What would be interesting to see is if that also uh, played out when he was dealing with individual uh, words or uh, items, such as in his book on pharmacology. Because that has a lot of ethnological information yes. for each uh, item. One could imagine that he was consulting uh, lexica there. Yes. Than, uh, consulting, uh, yeah, he says that actually in the introduction that he that he uh, that he had a uh, a quadrilingual lexicon that had Greek, Syriac, Arabic, and Persian. I think for the plant names. Yeah. Okay, then. Thank you very much.